creator of all things, Lords, the end. You've done. Lord, we're here today as a people to praise you, to bless you, to worship you. And Lord, we do come. We come with our hearts. We come with prayers. We come with burdens upon us. We come, Lord, because you're the only one that can do anything. Lord, we have a whole list of individuals and people that need you. We all need you here in this place. And Lord, we pray that we would be a repentant people, that we would see who we really are and the privilege and the honor of what you've brought us into. And Lord, we say we're sorry. We confess. We repent of our sins. We ask for your blessing upon this place. We ask, O oh Lord, for your anointing upon your word. We pray for the ministry here now. We ask, O oh Lord, that your word would go forth with power. May we not just sit there and say, this is just the same old thing every week, but Lord, may we sit there and say, I want to hear from you, God. I want to hear your voice, that you would give each of us at least one thing here today that we can leave with. Pray for our brother, for your anointing upon him. Lead, guide him, give him freedom of speech. Anoint him, O oh Lord. Give him the spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. We pray that your word would just accomplish what you desire to do. We do remember Jason Knott today, Lord. We ask, O oh Lord, you'd have mercy upon this man. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would continue to help him through his illness and his sickness. We commit him into your hands your timing, Lord, and your blessing. Lord, we exalt you here today. We say we need you. We thank you that you are our God, and you are the God of the living. We praise you, we bless you. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. I'd like to invite the children to come on down front. Now I've got a story for you today. In fact, I have something today that you can take home, but not until after the service. Do not open these, all right? Have a seat on the floor. This is a little project. Oh, no. Oh, yes. It's a project, all right. Years ago, I went to camp in Connecticut as a camp pastor, and uh, there was an art director there by the name of Daryl Erickson, and Daryl had been to camp a week early and gone out into the woods around East Haddam, Connecticut, and collected things like deer antlers and old branches and so on, and he prepared some things so that we could have camp projects that came from camp. This is one of the things that we did. This is a little plaque. I could have wood burnt this, but I didn't. You can pass this around. What I want you to notice is how smooth it is on the top. When I got it, it had been sawed with a uh, pruning saw, so it had deep grooves in it, and so the, the challenge was to work hard and to make it smooth. Here's some other things that came from that week. I'm not sure, I think this might have been from an apple tree. Uh, this came from a baseball bat. Just pass them around there. And this came from, actually I think this actually came from an oak tree in Lansing, Iowa, so it wasn't from that week, but you can pass this. Just notice they're really smooth and they all started out very, very rough. And I wanted you to have an experience of how you do this, all right? How do you get from rough to smooth? Well, you don't start 
with the very finest sandpaper, thinking that'll polish it up because this is 400 grit sandpaper. It's very, very fine. That's the last thing you use. The first thing you use is 60 grit. So pass that around and feel how rough that is. Don't rub your hand on it. It'll make it, you, you could scratch yourself. It's so scratchy. It's so heavy. That's what you start with, to get the rough saw marks off. And then you work it down, and the next thing you do is 100 grit. That's the next one. And then you work up to 150 grit. Now you're getting it a little smoother, pretty nice. And then, actually, I think I have some 320, something like that. And then you go to, actually, I think I have 175, something. Anyway, then there's, then there's 220, there's 320, and then finally you get to 400, which is just to polish it. Now, normally, you don't use 400 grit on wood. You can pass these around and see what those are all like. Here's the point. We all start out in life a little rough, like this piece of wood. You can pass that on. You feel how rough it is. You can pass it around and see how rough it is. See? And God works on us to smooth us out when we give our lives to Jesus. We don't start off nice and smooth and polished and all the rough edges. And what happens is we have to come up against some tough things in order to get rid of those marks of sin that are in our life. God is working with us. Sometimes we don't like it. It's kind of like when, when you do training in athletics, the first couple of weeks in football practice, they used to call it hell week because it was so hard. And you think, oh, this is just going to kill me. But you know what? It makes you stronger. And then we move up to, to the next sort of level of, of obstacles that we have to overcome. And Jesus is still working on us and still working on us and, and so on until finally the final polish. You know what we would like to do, boys and girls? You know what we would like to do? We would like to skip right to the 400 grit experiences of life. Just the little minor irritations, right? The little troubling things, just because we'd like to pretend that we don't have any deep gouges in our life, but we all do. We need the tough experiences to smooth those things out, to make us trust in God. So I have a kit for each one of you. They're in the bag up here on the front, and don't take them now, because you know what's going to happen? You're going to take it out, and we're going to hear all during the worship service, and there will be sawdust everywhere. So I want you to come up with your parents at the end and grab one of those kits, and then there will be sawdust all over your house when you get home. So that's my blessing upon you today. Okay, you can take your seats. You can go sit down now. Away with you. All right. That was an interesting week at camp, by the way, when we got these projects. Thanks, buddy. Thank you. It was very interesting because all during all of the missionary times and the chapel services, there were kids sanding things. <clears throat> kids were trading with one another for finer grit sand sandpaper as they worked up. We did this project one week at Vacation Bible School in, <clears throat> in Gross Point, Michigan. One of the things about it is it's not the thing you can do in 15 minutes. You have to work on it all week. And that's kind of lesson number one. Kids like to do things that, boom, I can do it today and take it home. We'd say, no, you're not done with that yet. And they work and work and work, and there'd still be grooves from the saw, you know. And say, is this it yet? Whatever. Finally, one kid got fed up about the middle of the week, and he said, well, if you want it that smooth, you're going to have to do it yourself anyway. <laughs> I think sometimes that's what we tell God, isn't it? God, enough of this trouble in life, enough of these tests. If you want it smooth, you're going to have to do it yourself. Well, he did, didn't he? He went to the cross for us, so our sins are forgiven. But the character development that's supposed to come after we're born again, that still takes some rough 
grit sandpaper. Well, we are in the Gospel of Matthew this morning. Lord willing, as we go through these last four Sundays of Advent, since Christmas, Christmas tide is the 25th is a Sunday this year, and we're going to go through Advent in the Gospels. Matthew, familiar stories. Mark, what in the world is he talking about? Advent and Mark. Luke, of course, beautiful Christmas stories. And the Gospel of John, which really sets the stage for the advent of Christ. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Hopefully it will be, be helpful. Um, as you have, if you have your Bible, I hope you do, you, will you turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew? And we're going to look at three main things that come out of the first two chapters, Matthew's take on the advent. We have God's sovereign control over the generations, first of all. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. As we saw this morning in our study of Genesis, where in the 11th chapter or so we get to Abraham, we begin to focus on this one family, the family of Abraham, the descendants of Shem. And Matthew's genealogy is unlike Luke's. Luke goes all the way back to Adam, all the way back to Adam, and starts from the very beginning and takes us up. But uh, Matthew takes a more Jewish perspective. He takes us back to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. And so we have neatly divided into 14 generations each, uh, Abraham uh, up, to, uh, up to David and then up to the deportation of Babylon after that, 14 generations. Now, I don't think we're getting every generation along the way, but it's a picture of how God prepared and set the stage, the generations. Then we're going to see God's revelation of his sovereign plan in prophecy. How does God make his will and his way known, his destiny for us known? We're going to talk about that. And then last of all, we're going to see something I think that's quite interesting in Matthew that's unique to Matthew, and that is God's guidance through angels, and these are angels who appear in dreams. So first of all, sovereignty over the generations. Listen, we all came from somewhere. There isn't a one of you here that crawled out from under a rock all by yourself. You all have parents and grandparents and great-grandparents. I think I might have mentioned this already someplace when I retired. I got into Ancestry.com for a while. I actually paid money until I ran into a stone wall. I couldn't get past my grandparents. Apparently, the Norwegians and Swedes did just crawl out from under a rock at some point. <clears throat> Actually, I did get back to some great-grandparents on my maternal grandmother's side, but it, the names didn't make any sense to me. They all end with daughter. They don't, you know, if it's a woman, it's not somebody's sen, S-E-N, it's D-O-T-T-I-R, and there's various Scandinavian names ending with daughter. It meant nothing to me whatsoever, other than I found out she came from Trondheim. That's all I know. My wife, on the other hand, goes back practically to the beginning, shortly before the time of Abraham, I think, or something. I don't know. Anyway, actually to uh, the 17th century and a, a family, a man by the name of Lee, who came over in this country, and that's, he had some pretty famous uh, descendants, which led me to the question, where's the money? What happened with that? At any rate. But we all have a background, and here's the deal. God was involved in that. Now, you're not famous, probably. Very few of you here are famous, well-known. Uh, we have no Kardashians in this congregation. Praise the Lord. Um, we're just ordinary people. But that doesn't mean God wasn't involved in getting us to the planet. 
in deciding ahead of time who our ancestors were going to be, in coming up with that exact mix of DNA that means you. You're a miracle. We are the descendants of survivors, survivors of catastrophes, survivors of wars, survivors of plagues, aren't we? If, if our ancestors hadn't survived, we wouldn't be here. Simple as that. And this genealogy in Matthew, the genealogy of Jesus, reminds us of that. God had a plan for Jesus. He brought it about according to his plans, and in some cases, it was very miraculous. In some cases, very unlikely. Do you have any black sheep in your family tree? I did discover, as I looked into mine, that there's a little bit of a problem with my maternal grandfather. I always knew that he abandoned his wife and his children. He disappeared. Let's, let's put it that way. He disappeared. My grandmother liked to put this, this uh, spin on it, that he went off to work one Saturday morning, and it was payday. He worked in the mills in Minneapolis. He never came home, and she thought maybe he got conked on the head and had his pay robbed from him, and somebody dumped his body in the river. And that's possible. That could have happened. I also heard another story that she told him, if you're going to bring that bucket of beer home with you this afternoon, don't bother to come home. And so he didn't. That's another story I heard about him, so I don't know if that's true. And then uh, one of the, the Hermanson clan, his name was Hermanson, did some more research and discovered that the very time he disappeared, so did one of the, the boarders in my grandmother's house that she kept a boarding house. And, uh-oh, a young lady, uh-oh. And that young lady's name showed up in Salt Lake City the same time Emil Hermanson's name showed up in records in Salt Lake City. So guess what? He ran away with another woman. That's my heritage. What a rich heritage that is. Pat, I promise I won't. I really won't. <coughs> Excuse me. Who'd want me? <coughs> and even if they did. Maybe you've got some black sheep like that. And guess what? Jesus has black sheep in his background. This, these, these four women in his genealogy, uh, T- Tamar, who uh, basically seduced her own father-in-law so that she could have a child because the, the other two boys that she'd married died. And he was supposed to give her the third son and, and never did, and so she fixed that herself. Rahab, who was a practicer of the oldest profession in the world, even older than being an attorney, was being what Rahab was. And, and then, of course, there's the one good girl out of the whole bunch, Ruth, who, who was a Moabitess and was a godly woman, and, and, you know, your God will be my God and your people will be my people, and she is just a wonderful example of Christian commitment. But she's a Gentile, as are all four of these. And then, of course, there's Bathsheba, and enough said about that. Four women, all of them, well, three of them anyway, black sheep, all of them Gentiles in the line of the Messiah. What does that tell us? God was planning from the very beginning to incorporate Gentiles Most of us here today probably don't have any Jewish ancestry, but God incorporated us into the family of God. It was built right into the DNA of the Lord Jesus Christ. He thought about us. So God got you here today, not by accident, but on purpose. And God saved you, not by accident, but on purpose. And God has a plan for your life. What a wonderful thing this genealogy is. It's interesting, too, that the first two generations that are listed here in the Gospel of Matthew are glorious generations. There are a lot of famous people, but when we get to the post-exile 14 generations, it's pretty plain Jane vanilla. 
Nothing very fancy about it at all. And yet it was just as important to get to Jesus as the first two generations. You don't have to be famous or glorious to be important in God's sight. And this just emphasizes even the unglorious parts of our ancestry and of our own lives have a purpose for God and his grace. The Gentiles included in God's plan, and God keeps his promise by grace, irrespective of human weakness. Now, next we see in Matthew's gospel a lot of prophecy. There's a lot of prophecy in Matthew's gospel. And the prophecies in the first two chapters, they tend to have a tagline that goes with them. For example, uh, chapter 1, verse 22, all this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. In chapter 2, verse 15, this was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. In 2.17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, 1.23 is followed by the quote from Isaiah 7.14, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. God doing a miracle bringing about the conception of Jesus in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit, the only virgin birth that ever was and ever will be through Mary. By the way, you've heard the term immaculate conception. This has got nothing to do with this sermon. How many of you heard that term? There's a lot of Catholic churches that are named immaculate conception. That does not refer to what we read here in Matthew. Did you know that? That refers to the conception of Mary. According to Roman Catholic theology, Mary was born without sin. That's how you get to a sinless Jesus. That's what they say. Does the Bible say that? No, it doesn't say that. Mary needed a Savior just like you and me. I think there was even a point in her life when she was kind of fed up with him. He was acting like a crazy man as he began his earthly ministry. She went with his siblings or his half-siblings to kind of bring him home again, if you recall, even his own family. It says in John's Gospel, did not believe in him. But eventually she came around and, and found that this son of hers needed to be her savior as well. The Immaculate Conception of Mary. However, that has a troubling, this has nothing to do with this sermon, but I can't help myself. Do you realize, men, this has an implication for us? Where did Jesus get his perfect nature from? What's the trouble? What's different about it? He didn't have an earthly father. Uh-oh. Is it possible that the sin nature is inherited from the old man? This is not part of the sermon today. This is just wick. Uh, how about it, guys? Maybe it doesn't come through the mother. Mary had a sin nature, but Jesus was born sinless. Maybe the sin nature is inherited through the dad. Uh-oh. You didn't hear that here. It's not part of the sermon. But I'm sure your wife will remember it forever. That's your side of the family when the kids act up. And it, I think it is. I have a solid theological basis for believing it. It's all your fault, Dad. All right, uh, Matthew uh, chapter 2, verse 6, quotes Micah 5, 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. In chapter 2, verse 15, quotes Hosea 11:1. 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Uh, Jesus had to go to Egypt to fulfill this prophecy, and he did. And two, uh, Matthew 2, 18, quoting Jeremiah 31, 15, 
Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. This is a prophecy that was fulfilled when Herod, after the visit of the wise men, sent his troops out to kill all the children under the age of two in Bethlehem. Not a very nice person. Herod was a very evil person, a very evil tyrant. Off with their heads was his solution to many problems. So he was threatened by the fact that there was one who had been born king of the Jews in fulfillment of prophecy, and he was the king of the Jews, and he didn't want any competition, not even from somebody that was born of God. And so he was going to take care of it. Of course, it didn't work. By the way, and this is important, this is a horrible thing, by the way, that's part of the Christmas story. And this verse, as far as I know, has never appeared on any Christmas card anywhere because it's about a mass murder. Why? That's not a Christmas thing, but it is a Christmas thing. If you put it into the context of Jeremiah, it, it changes the meaning somewhat because it is uh, basically in the context of, and then after this, everything changes and gets better. You can read it in the 31st chapter and see if I'm not right. In other words, it was a terrible, terrible thing that happened, but it was, it was something that presaged something that was very, very good. A blessing from God came thereafter. And from now on, it gets nothing but better. So, so much for that prophecy. God always fulfills his word. It's very important that we have that prophecy in Isaiah because it was another sign of satanic opposition to Jesus' birth. Satan had been after the line of the Messiah since the very beginning. He knew that God was up to something. He didn't understand exactly what it was going to be, but he knew that he had to stop it in some way. And so there was a whole group of people called the Amaleks that were at war with the Jews forever. And you know what? I think they still are today. Kanye West, a spiritual descendant of Adolf Hitler, if they aren't blood relatives of the Amalekites, they're in the spirit of the Amalekites. They're out to get God's people. And in the days before Jesus was born, this was something that Satan spurred on because he wanted that line of the Messiah to be cut off. He wanted to prevent God's plan from being accomplished. But what do we find out about any attempt to stop God's plan from being accomplished? It doesn't work. Satan is continually frustrated. Sometimes we get upset. I do, about the things I see going on in the world. I think, woe is us for all these terrible things. This is a crazy, crazy world we live in. It's getting crazier, it seems, by the moment. But is all of this horrible stuff that's going on today going to stop God from fulfilling his plan? No, it's not. God wins in the end. That's what I know about the book of Revelation. I don't understand all the details of it, but I do know this. I know that God wins. God's prophecies about the coming of Jesus were all fulfilled. There are dozens of them. Jesus checked all of the boxes. If you look at what the Messiah had to be, where he had to be born, what he had to be like, and so on, everything is there for the Messiah, Jesus, all fulfilled but there are many prophecies of Scripture that have not yet been fulfilled. Jesus is going to come back. God has told us that. He's going to come back and judge the world in righteousness. Paul talks about that in the book of Acts. He's going to come back. Jesus is going to return and judge the world in righteousness. And God proved that this is true because he raised Jesus from the dead. This is the judge. He's coming to judge the world. This ought to trouble unbelievers very deeply. When Paul preached... Whenever he could, 
before the kings and princes of this world. They were troubled by this. These were people who liked to think they were in charge. They made the decisions. Everything they did was right. Nobody argued with Herod, for example. But Herod, too, just like the rest of us, was going to stand barefoot and naked before the eternal judge. No place to hide. No place to hide his dirty hands. And he was going to have to answer for the horrible things that he had done. One of the things that encourages me so much, friends, is in the book of Revelation, John has been brought forward to the future. Time travel is possible, by the way, apparently, because John was brought forward to the future, and John saw John saw what was happening before the great white throne. He saw eternity begin, and then there is this verse. The Lord Jesus says to him, it is done. In the future, Jesus talks about future events as if they were past events. Doesn't that give you assurance? It's done. As far as God is concerned, it has already happened. He has won the victory. All of his prophecies will be fulfilled. They will be carried out. All of those things that God has said are going to happen. There's another aspect of God's revelation that comes out in Matthew's gospel, and that comes out through the wise men, the magi who come from the east. These were probably men who had learned about astronomy or astrology in, their, in those days from uh, the, the school that Daniel had founded in Babylon. Uh, there's no chapter and verse on that, but the kinds of things that they were doing would indicate the very fact that they were looking <clears throat> for a king to be born in Syria, where, which includes Palestine, indicates that they had some indication that they would have learned from Daniel, the idea that there would be a savior that was sent for the Jewish people. Uh, it's very likely that that star of Bethlehem, it's very possible, let's put it that way, I don't know about likely, but possible, that the star of Bethlehem was a conjunction of planets, Jupiter, the king star, and Saturn, the planet that represented the end times, con conjoining together in the house in the heavens, the house of Pisces, which was assigned to Syria. And as the wise men are reading the movement of the planets, they see the king star and the end times star and the area of Palestine, and therefore they say, hmm, where is this king of the Jews? There's something going on. We want to find out about it. There was a professor whose last name I remember, I don't remember his first name, but who could forget a name, Leakey? Professor Leakey was an astronomy professor at the University of Minnesota, and he wrote a monograph about the star of Bethlehem in which he identified this conjunction of the two planets in the house of Syria, and, and along about 7 B.C., something, 7, 6 B.C., I forget when it was. <coughs> and he programmed the planetarium at the University of Minnesota, and there was a yearly show that he would give of the star of Bethlehem, and he had it all worked out so that you could see the star actually rising over the, uh, above the crest of the hill where the city of Bethlehem sat. And he said it's even entirely possible that as that star rose one evening, it was right over the building where the manger was, where Jesus lay. And this is a secular professor, by the way, that said this. Look, look, here it is. I'm just running it all out exactly the way the planets move, so I'm not guessing about this. And here's how I worked it out with the topography, and guess what? They could have seen this star rising right over that building where Jesus was, which is exactly what the Gospel of Matthew says. God revealing himself in the things that he has made. What does the psalmist say? The heavens declare the glory of God. Don't they? People sometimes think, well, how can you believe in a God 
in a universe that's so big. I'm thinking, what do you think God is? Like you? God is just bigger than the universe. I, I stand in awe of this universe, but even more so in, the, in, the awe, in awe of the God who made it. God does reveal himself in the things that he has made. God's glory is revealed in creation, and it's revealed in his control over natural events. God does cause miracles to happen, and he uses things that were happening in the course of time to fulfill his will and his purpose. And so, uh, you know, brothers and sisters, we are in good hands with the Lord. He's got a plan for you. He's known about you since before the foundation of the world. He's going to take care of you right to the end. Not a hair of your head will be harmed. No, that was said to people who were burnt at the stake so we're not talking about physical bodies. We're talking about your eternal existence. You're going to get to glory unscathed by the wiles of the devil. That's God's promise to his people. Then we have this aspect of the angels in the book of Matthew. Angels who appear in dreams. There's several instances of that here. They, uh, it's different than the, than the Gospel of Luke, where physical angels appear to people. This is Joseph seeing dreams. This is the wise men getting an angelic message in a dream. Now, angel just means messenger. But what this tells me is that there's, God has different ways of doing things. This doesn't say that angels are only a dream or they're part of an imaginary world. It just says that God has the ability to break into your subconscious and give you a message. Um, maybe the message is you shouldn't have eaten that pepperoni pizza right before you went to bed. I don't know, but... I, I, I jest, of course. Um, I, I don't know that God needs to do that anymore. He needed to do it here because there wasn't a chapter and verse in Scripture that he could send Mary to or Joseph to. Um, there, were, there were, but there needed to be some explanation, let's put it that way. And so this miracle happened. Well, this is a kind of a humbling thing. Apparently, God doesn't need us to communicate his message. If all else fails, he'll just show up personally. There are stories circulating now, and I've tried to check them out, and as far as I can tell, it's true, of Muslims in Muslim countries where Christianity is illegal, in fact, if you convert, you'll be killed, coming to Christ because they meet him in a dream. I've heard three or four of these stories, and as far as I can tell, they're completely credible. That would be completely in line with what we read here in the Gospel of Matthew. If God can't get to this person that he has chosen of old before the foundation of the world in any other way, he will somehow show up in person or send an angel to take care of it. So people will say, by the way, well, what about all the heathen that have heard about Jesus? As if they've now discovered how God is unfair and unjust. God is absolutely fair and absolutely just. What makes you think they never heard about Jesus? How can you say that for sure about God? When God has the ability to get right into somebody's subconscious and convey information to them. Now, I'm not saying that's normative today, but it's happened, hasn't it? It happened here in the Gospel of Matthew. We're, we're, we're building these strictures around what God can do based on our 21st century understanding of reality. We bought, bought into Freudian dream theory. You know, it's always... It's indigestion or whatever. It's just wish fulfillment. So it doesn't, but that doesn't mean it can't come from the outside as well as from the inside because that's the kind of a God we have. Now, I wouldn't start. I'm not suggesting you start relying on your dreams because maybe it was just a pizza. And besides, why would you need to when you have the Word of God to rely on? 
I just want to say we need to think outside the box a little bit. Let me read you a passage from the book of Job. 33rd chapter, verses 14 to 18, and then 29 to 30. <clears throat> For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. In other words, this is subconscious communication. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit that he might be lighted with the light of life. Do you know that passage in Job? What does it tell you? It says, listen, God is a sovereign God, and he can speak to people any way he wants to, including to his subconscious. Will the man necessarily listen? No, not necessarily. But people have the opportunity. That's why when people say, well, God's being unfair. Uh, what about all those people who never heard about Jesus? What makes you think they've never heard about Jesus? When God can speak to people while they're asleep, to their deepest subconscious, calling them to repentance, calling them to give up their evil deeds and come to him. You see, God is absolutely fair in what, they, uh, what he does. No one, no one will ever stand before God with this excuse that they have never heard from God. Some years ago, I had uh, some spiritual formation groups and we invited, intentionally invited people who weren't born again into these groups. We'd have maybe four or five people, six people in a group, and at least one person that wasn't saved in the group. And what we did in these groups is we talked about our experiences with God. We started with just very basic things. A basic question was, what, what was the first time in your life that you realized that God was more than just a word? It's an interesting question, and, and the Christians would go around and share, and, and then the unsaved person would share. You know what we found out? Even people who don't know Jesus have had some experience with God. God is talking to people. Most of the time, those people in those groups came to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. As they heard about the depth of the experience that born-again people had with God, it was so much more clear. It made perfect sense to them. But, but we weren't starting with a blank slate. Why? Job 33, 14 to 18, because God was present in their life talking to them. And if he has to do it, because there's no other way, he can even bring people to faith in Christ that way. Now, that doesn't mean we stop sending missionaries, folks. No, no, no. No, he's told us to go. He's told us to share. What this does tell us is something about prayer. We should be praying. And we're going to talk about this when we do personal evangelism training. We should be praying for unsaved friends. We should all of us have a hit list for people to be saved, not to be killed. Maybe some of you have a hit list of the other kind. Please don't do that. Have one for people that you want to see get saved. And on that list should be your worst enemy, by the way. On that list should be the most despicable, vile politician you can think of, by the way. Do you know what? I thought I was going to lose my mind when Al Franken got elected. Talk about an election that was stolen. You know about the boxes of ballots that showed up at the last minute? because there were only a couple of dozen votes apart, the Republican and the, De and the Democratic senator, and all of a sudden somebody discovered some boxes of ballots in the trunk of their car. I wonder where they came from. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't usually talk politics, but I was so fed up with that, and I was really angry about Al Franken. 
And I had some very, very bad thoughts about him because he's a jokester. And that's not a serious person, although I did discover he's a Harvard grad. That doesn't mean he's not a jokester at any rate. Then I, I got convicted about this. What right did I have to have those feelings? Am I better than him? Aren't I just a wretched sinner like him? And then I started to realize, what I need to do is pray for Al's salvation. So I did that for, I think, about three and a half years, and then he was kicked out of the U.S. Senate. So you can thank me for that. You can thank God for that. I, don't, don't, I think there were a lot of people praying for, Al, for God to deal with Al. And God did deal with Al. Amen? Can you do that? Can you do that? Get a, develop a hit list. Some people say a hit list with 10. I think five is a little more practical. You include you know, a political figure or somebody you really don't like. And then, but then include, include people that you really do like and you don't want them to go to hell. And be praying for them. Because what do we learn from Matthew? We learn here that God gets into people's heads. And he can tell them specific things that they should do. Do you think maybe that might be to repent and put their life into the hands of Jesus Christ, their trust in what Jesus did on the cross? Of course God can do that. Pray for them. And pray for God to send workers into the harvest. We who have heard... (laughs) Excuse me. We have heard the prophetic word and we know that it is always fulfilled are absolutely without excuse that's my final word here today there's really only three kinds of people in the world there's people who have never heard about Jesus Christ and who may yet hear about him so one way or the other there's people who've heard about Jesus Christ and who have accepted him as their savior that's you I hope you put your trust in him. Then there's people who've heard the gospel, have heard about Jesus, and they have not yet accepted him. Which one are you? There's only three kinds of people. And sometimes people in that third category are saying, what about all those people who haven't heard? What makes you so sure they haven't heard? And besides, that's not your problem. Your problem is you have heard. What have you done with it? And I say to myself and I say to you, and what am I doing and what are you doing with the prophetic word Jesus has given you, the opportunities Jesus has given you to serve him and to testify for him and to stand up for him? Are you doing it? You know you should. We are without excuse if we don't let our light shine in this dark world. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I would pray for anyone here who's in that, that third category, who's heard the gospel but has been holding back from commitment to you. Your word says, Jesus, that you're coming to judge the world and that those who before the great white throne do not find their names written in the book of life, who've rejected the offer of salvation in you are going to be sent to eternal torment. That's not just a story, that's reality. So I pray that this morning would be an an opportunity, a time when that brother or sister who's not yet made that decision would say, all right, I give up. Jesus, I'm putting my trust in you. Thank you for dying on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins. Right now, I'm inviting you to come into my life. Take control. Make me into the kind of person that you want me to be. Lord, I pray for all of us who are your followers, who know what your word says, and Lord, sometimes we fall so short, we're not doing what we ought to do. Help us, Heavenly Father, to put our trust in you and to speak out for Jesus, to be light in this ever-darkening world. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.
Would you all please stand? May God himself, the God of peace, make you holy in every part, keep you sound in spirit, mind, and body, without fault when our Lord Jesus Christ comes. He who calls you is to be trusted. He will do it. Amen. Thank you. 